Last week, we talked with Adrian Nye about emotional eating and how our eating habits have been changing in the times of pandemic. This week, we're staying with the subject matter of mental health and take a deeper look at the psychological impact of being confined to our homes. We've invited Laurie Gottlieb, a psychotherapist and New York Times bestselling author of Maybe You Should Talk to Someone, to talk with us about how we can practically deal with anxiety, stress, and perhaps the feeling of loss we may be experiencing right now. You will also learn why being under lockdown does not have to equal isolation and why it's important for us to have fun. You're listening to 20 Minute Fitness and I'm Martin Kessler. As always, 20Fit is brought to you by ShapeScale, your personal 3D body scanner that keeps your health in check. Hey everyone, it's Martin from 20 Minute Fitness. I'm stuck at home in San Francisco and today I'm connected with a psychotherapist, Lori Gottlieb. Lori, why don't you introduce yourself and your work? Sure. So I'm Lori Gottlieb. I'm a psychotherapist in Los Angeles. I'm the author of the book, Maybe You Should Talk to Someone. And I write the weekly Dear Therapist column for The Atlantic. Right. And you had an interesting career progression from first starting out in, in the TV and film industry and then transitioning to med school and then eventually becoming a psychotherapist. How did that come about? Yeah. So I've always been interested in story and the human condition. And so I started off after college working in film and then television. And one of the first shows that I was assigned to when I was over at NBC was ER. And we had a consultant on the show who was an emergency room physician. And I spent a lot of time in the emergency room with him to do research for the show. And he kept saying to me, I think you like it better here than you like your day job. <laughs> And maybe you should go to medical school. And I should say I was a French major in college. Wow. <laughs> um, I was very mathy and sciencey, but I was I was always into sort of like literature and language. But I did go to medical school. And when I was up at medical school, I was up at Stanford and it was uh, this time when the healthcare system was changing and it was a lot of talk about managed care. And I had this idea of really guiding my patients through their lives. And it didn't seem like that was going to be the kind of clinical environment that would be easy to manage. And so because I was still interested in story and the human condition, I left to become a journalist. I had mm -hmm. done some writing up in that school. And I, I still am a journalist, but after I had a baby, I'd been a journalist for about 10 years and had a baby and I really needed to talk to adults during the day. <laughs> and so the UPS guy would come and he'd like, you know, I would detain him with conversations and he would back away to his big brown truck. And at a certain point, he would just tiptoe to the door and gently place the package down so I could not you know, engage him in conversation. So I called up the dean at Stanford and I said, maybe I should come back and do psychiatry. And she said, you're welcome to come back, but you might be doing a lot of medication management. And I know that you really want those, those longer deeper relationships with your patients, why don't you get a graduate degree in clinical psychology and become a psychotherapist? And that was exactly what I did. And I feel like I simply went from being a journalist where I help people to tell their stories to being a therapist where I help people to change their stories. And how do you think your, your initial background in the film and TV industry has been influencing your current work then? Is it really the storytelling or what is it exactly? It is. I feel like when I sit in the therapist chair that I am really an editor. And uh, people come in with a faulty narrative generally because every single one of us is an unreliable narrator, meaning that we're not trying to mislead, but we tell our stories in a particular way and from a particular perspective. And usually that version of the story is what's holding people back. A lot of people think that they're coming to therapy to get mm. to know themselves, but 
really, I feel like a lot of what we do in therapy is helping people to unknow themselves, to let go of the limiting stories that they've been telling themselves so they can live their lives and not some faulty narrative that they've been telling themselves about their lives. And, and how does that look in practice? Like what, what you know, are like the, the false narratives that you tell about themselves and, and how, how is that changing after actually having those conversations with you? Well, a lot of people come to therapy because they want something to change. Mm -hmm. Something's not working in their lives. And usually what they want in the beginning is they want someone else or something else to change. Right. And what they come to realize is that they have so much agency to make changes themselves, that it's not about changing someone else or something else. It's about how do you respond to that? What kinds of changes can you make in your own life? And so we shift the story so they become the protagonist in their own lives and they're not just reactive to something that's going on around them. Right. And uh, you've been writing that those individual stories form basically the core of our own lives and give them deeper meaning. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah, I think that we're natural storytellers, you know, even starting with cave drugs, you know, we always wanted to communicate through story. And I think it's so much easier to see ourselves through somebody else's story. So in Maybe You Should Talk to Someone, I follow the lives of four very seemingly different patients on the surface. And then there's a fifth patient. And the fifth patient is, of course, me as I go through my own therapy, as I go through something in my own life. Right. And I think that really the book is about the human condition. It's about the reader. So, so many people who've read the book say, oh, I, I learned so much about myself. I saw so much of myself in those stories. Because if you say to someone, you know, you do this or you're like this, our instinct is to say, no, I'm not. No, I don't. But when you see somebody else do something, it's almost like having a mirror held up to you where all of a sudden you see yourself much more clearly. And that gives you so much more agency and power in your own life when you understand why something isn't working and what you can do about it. And does it really require us to have, you know, like these conversations to have basically that mirror held against us to really understand our own story better? Or is it also something in play of how, you know, our own stories are forming in the first place? Is it like something that we can do actually to be more conscious about unknowing ourselves? I think that it's hard to do by yourself. Right. Because it's kind of like if you're zoomed into a picture, you just see a little portion of it. But if you zoom out, you see this wider perspective. And I think that's what other people do for us because we're so close to ourselves that we lose perspective. We don't see the big picture. And talking to somebody else can help you to see something that you haven't been either willing or able to see. It's almost like I think going to therapy is like getting a really good second opinion on your life. Right. And for those of us that don't have access to a therapist, is there like another way of actually realizing how the people in our own environment perceive us, actually. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the title of the book, Maybe You Should mm -hmm. Talk to Someone, doesn't just mean maybe you should talk to a therapist. It means maybe we should all be talking more to one another. And this was written before the pandemic. Right. So, you know, this, this applies all the time, even more so now, of course. But I think that a lot of times we don't really oh, like take off the mask and talk to people about what's really going on with us because we have shame, because we're afraid of how they might react, because, you know, we're embarrassed, whatever it might be. And I think what people come to realize when they do make contact with another person in that way is how much the same we all are. That, that you know, underneath it all, we all want the same things. We all 
all want to love and be loved. We all have regret. We all have anxiety about certain things. We're all so similar. And so I think that we feel isolated so much of the time, partly because everyone's going through something similar. It might look different, but underneath at the core, it's very similar. And yet nobody wants to open up and share that. So we feel like we're the only ones. And why, why do you think that is? Why does nobody want to open up? Because it's true. Many people wear almost like a mask, you know, like when they go outside and they act with people, you know, that are not very close to them. Well, it's funny. I think there's also some some cultural stereotypes around that. And one is that I think that when men especially come in, they'll say to me, you know, I never told anyone this before. <laughs> and then, right? And then, and then what they tell me almost often feels really mild, like, wow, our culture has made it so that men can't be vulnerable in any mm. way, right? I have so much compassion for them. Even if they have a partner, friends, family, they didn't feel like they could tell anyone that. Women will come in and they'll say, I've never told anyone this before, except for my mother or my sister or my best friend, right? So they've told maybe one to three people, um, but they feel like they haven't told anyone. And so there's still that stigma for women because they feel like things that feel that, that are very universal experiences still feel like, I don't know if anyone else is going through this. I don't know if I should share this. I might appear weak. I might appear damaged. I might appear like something's wrong with me. And also when you look at social media, it looks like, and we all know that social media is curated, but it still has an effect on us. I think when everything around us looks like everybody's got it together, everybody's, you know, got their lives together in a certain way. And you're sitting there going like, why is this so hard for me? Life is hard for everyone. And I think people don't realize that. Yeah, it's true. When it comes to social media, we have a tendency to mostly talk or publish the good things in our lives, you know, like great meals, going on a vacation, being successful, but hardship is very rarely shared. And I think that's giving us a distorted field of perception of what's going on, right? And it's creating also FOMO. Absolutely. And I think part of it too, is that because of that, we weren't brought up to really know how to access our feelings. We think of feelings as either positive or negative. There are like positive feelings like joy and there are negative feelings, quote unquote, negative feelings like anxiety, anger, sadness, envy, right? Right. And I always say to people, use those feelings. There's no such thing as a negative or positive feeling. They're all part of the human condition and you need them. And if you couldn't feel your anxiety or your sadness or your anger, you wouldn't know what wasn't working. They're they're giving you information about what's not working and what needs to change. And even something like envy, which people really feel like, oh, that's terrible. I shouldn't feel envious. I say to people, follow your envy. It tells you what you want. So instead of feeling like that makes me feel bad because I don't have that, say, oh, this is giving me information about my desire. This tells me something about what I want. And so what steps can I take to get something like that for myself? Sometimes it's so hard for us to acknowledge that we have desire. Yeah, it's seems like one core problem is really that we have these perceived social norms that we project on us and that make us believe that we have to act a certain way to fit in. And it makes us ignore some of those feelings. And and that can, of course, create longer term issues, right? Yeah. And it happens young. I mean, I think as a parent, I've been really careful in my imperfect parenting to, to make sure that I don't try to talk my child out of his feelings. I think that a lot of parents, because we don't want our kids to experience pain, hmm. you know, they'll say like, I'm sad 
and we'll say, oh, don't be sad. Hey, look, a balloon. Right. <laughs> Let's go to Disneyland. <laughs> um, you know, or, or they'll say like, you know, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm scared. And they'll say, oh, there's nothing to be afraid of. Right. And so you sort of talk them out of their feelings instead of letting them sit with that feeling mm. so that they have practice and they say, oh, I can sit with my anxiety. And then, oh, now I know what to do with that. Or now I know what to do with the sadness. I know it needs to change. We talk them out of it so that when they grow up, they start to feel that feeling and they think, oh, I better not feel that. They don't know how to sit with those feelings right. in a way that's productive. So if, you know, some of our listeners have, you know, this issue of not being able to really fully open up and be vulnerable, share their emotions and, and really lift them out as well, like what would you advise them to do? Well, I think the first thing is to be able to be still with themselves, to be able to not distract themselves with, you know, the minute they feel a feeling with too much food or too much alcohol or hours on the internet. A colleague of mine said that the internet was the most effective short-term non-prescription painkiller out there, <laughs> um, <laughs> um, right? Because we'll do anything to get rid of a feeling. Yeah. So when you're feeling a feeling that may seem uncomfortable, just, just let it be there. Feelings are like weather systems. They blow in, they blow out. Sometimes it's raining, sometimes it's sunny, sometimes it's partly cloudy, sometimes it's windy. And so I think when we feel a feeling, we, we get alarmed because it's something that feels uncomfortable. So be able to kind of just notice it and then say to yourself, what information is this feeling giving me so that you you know what to do with it? And then I think also just taking a risk and, and choosing your audience well, choose someone that you trust and maybe be able to take off the mask a little bit. And that doesn't mean TMI, by the way, it doesn't mean too much information. It means just to be more real and more authentic and not put on some kind of front when you're not actually feeling a certain way to pretend that everything is always okay, that kind of thing. Right. And who, who do you think should be that person that we should open up first? Let's say, you know, like maybe a more practical example, a lot of people right now feel anxious, they feel stressed. Maybe some of us have even existential fears right now because of the COVID-19 pandemic. What should they do? I mean, if they, if they shouldn't escape to say watching Netflix or going on social media or, you know, going on, you know, countless of Zoom meetings where you just, you know, have small talk, but not really deep conversations. Well, I think it's a balance. I mean, I think Netflix is great in moderation. <laughs> I think that, you know, your Zoom meetings with your friends are great in moderation. But I think in terms of like really making contact with people, a lot of people make the mistake of going to the people who are not a good audience, meaning maybe family members where they have a lot of conflict with mm. them or friends that are not really supportive of them. And so I think that instead of going back to what I, it's sort of like the dry well, right? You keep going back thinking, that there's going to be water there this time. And no, there's not because you know that from experience, you know, maybe cultivating those friendships or, or, making sure you reach out to family members in a who that you trust in a way that that feels a little bit deeper and again i don't mean that these conversations are going to be like therapy sessions i mean just that you're you're really listening to the other person they're listening to you and by listening i mean i always say that when i'm listening in therapy i'm listening to the music under the lyrics the lyrics are the content of what someone's saying sometimes we don't know how to listen to other people and what we need to listen to is the music under the lyrics which is what is the emotional um, resonance of what they're saying can you empathize mm. with that? It's not just the content. A lot of times we'll hear somebody will say something and the first thing we do is we're just listening to the content and we try to solve their problem for them. Right. Instead of actually giving them the gift of our presence. 
This episode of 20 Minute Fitness is brought to you by Tonal, the smart at home gym with a built in personal trainer that replaces every machine in the weight room. The most widely known solution for those who want to get personalized and professional workout advice is getting a personal trainer. However, having a personal training session every week is not a viable solution for our wallets nor for our busy schedules. But Tonal is here to change all of this. Tonal is a two in one machine that provides you with a personal gym and an AI virtual trainer from the comfort of your own living room. With Tonal, you will receive a personalized workout regimen that will help you see real results and achieve your fitness goals faster than ever before. Now, what I find particularly motivating is the fact that Tonal continues to learn about you and adapts in real time to your own fitness level every single minute throughout your workout. Based on your performance, Tonal scores your strengths and breaks it down into upper body, core, and lower body. Over time, the machine then tells you how much and where exactly your strengths has been improving, and you can get all of this at the price of a gym membership. Stay home and stay fit with Tonal. Visit www.tonal.com to try Tonal for 30 days risk-free. Use promo code 20FIT at the checkout for $100 off the Smart Accessories add-on. That's www.tonal.com, promo code 20FIT, 20FIT, Tonal, be your strongest. Um, Aside from stress and anxiety, how else do you think people are affected, psychologically speaking, right now in this current situation? I think that everybody is experiencing loss of some sort. So I think there's this collective grieving process going on. And I wrote a piece recently about how it's really important that people not compare their losses to other people's losses, because what we do is we tend to minimize our losses by saying, well, it doesn't really matter that I lost this because if it's not loss of life, loss of health or loss of income, mm. right? It, it almost, we feel like it doesn't count because we should be grateful. And we should be grateful. But at the same time, that doesn't, you know, it's both and you can experience loss and also be grateful for what you do have. And so for people who, um, you know, have lost the opportunity to go to their college graduations and have a college graduation, and they've worked all these years for this, that's a huge loss. Even people who have lost the dailiness of their routines, the people that they normally see, the activities that they normally participate in, this has been going on for months now. It's, it's a big loss. You know, the sense of stability, that's a big loss. So I think that it's important for people to acknowledge their losses, acknowledge that and go through their grief, experience their grief and be able to sit with it, talk about Mm -hmm. it, acknowledge it. Just even acknowledging it lets you breathe more easily. It's almost like it gives you this freedom instead of feeling that constrained feeling of I'm having all these feelings, but I'm supposed to be grateful. So I can't really talk about that. Right. Yeah. I think for a lot of us, it has come almost so quickly that it was a shock, right? Initially it was downplayed and then suddenly it was there and it was affecting everyone. And I I think it's important to acknowledge that loss, but I think what is also problematic is that many people feel almost helpless, you know, because they can't really change the situation. Uh, What would you tell them? Well, I think that there's a difference between productive anxiety, which is, you know, I think we think of Mm -hmm. anxiety as being negative, but there's a, there's a positive kind of anxiety, which is productive anxiety, which is when you're reasonably worried about something. So you take productive action. So we're reasonably worried about the spread of the coronavirus as we should be. And so we are social distancing, we are washing our hands, we are following all the guidelines. And that is productive. Unproductive anxiety is obsessive rumination. It's catastrophizing, futurizing, imagining something happening that hasn't happened yet and may never happen in the future. 
um, checking the headlines every hour, mm. you know, those kinds of things. You're not doing anything that's being productive because you're already taking those measures, right? So this is very unproductive anxiety. And I think that people are afraid to experience joy in the midst of the anxiety, the loss, the pain. So people don't want to let themselves experience pleasure, which we really need right now, because not only do we need to protect our physical immune systems, but it's equally important that we protect our psychological immune systems. And that means that we don't overwhelm them with all of the anxiety and loss. And so, you know, people need to laugh right. with each other, people and not and not be ashamed of that. People need to enjoy the time that they're spending with the people who are, you know, that they're living with if they are, or the phone calls that they're having with the people that they're not living with. The little things like taking a walk or reading a book or um, taking a bath or connecting with a friend or cooking or whatever it might be, even watching a show, right? right. To really say like, it's okay to experience joy. My son is home right now doing remote learning. And I am so happy to see more of him right now, <laughs> even though the circumstances under which I'm seeing him are, of course, horrible. So it's the both and. Can we experience both? Yeah, it seems to be going around actually that now that we're stuck at home, it's actually an opportunity for us to reconnect with long lost classmates from, you know, college or even, you know, beyond or, you know, family members that we haven't talked to in, in a while. And I, I think this is also great, like to, you know, reestablish some of those emotional connections. Yeah, I think that we're all really examining who is really meaningful to us and what is really meaningful to us. And I think because we, you know, a lot of the noise has, has stopped um, because we can't do a lot of the things we would normally do. I think we're starting to notice what we don't have in our lives right now that we actually don't want to return to, that we realized <laughs> that was not really something that was productive or meaningful or fulfilling for me. And then also really prioritizing what we do want to return to because we're noticing now what matters the most. And if we can take those things that matter the most into wherever we go when we reemerge from this, I think that we're ultimately going to come out much stronger and, um, and much more emotionally healthy. What do you think is actually a good way of doing this sort of soul searching, you know, like this type of reflection, like to really look back at, you know, what, you know, we don't want to go back to and, and what are things that we would like to go back to? Would maybe journaling be something useful? Like I've been hearing that is something that has been advised. Yeah. I think that when you really notice what you're doing from minute to minute during the day, normally we don't notice that because we're rushing around so much, but right now you can really notice like how is your mood at certain times of day? And what are you doing when you, when you feel good? And can you do more of that? And when you're not feeling good, is there something, you know, what is, what is going on at that moment? And you can really kind of use this as a laboratory for what is actually happening that correlates with your mood being a certain way and what is happening that's correlating with your mood being a different way. We never stop to notice that. We're just kind of like, oh, I'm in a bad mood. We right. don't really know why. Well, it's almost like an experiment. You kind of look at, okay, what are all the things that you've been doing throughout the day or, you know, throughout a certain period of time that you were happy? And if you're unhappy, what are the things that have happened during that time? So you can almost like include and exclude the things that, you know, really have an impact on you, right? Yeah. Yeah. And then you know what to do more of and what to do less of. Right. And um, what do you think is going to be the longer term impact of COVID-19 on, you know, people's mental health in general? Well, I think it's really positive ultimately, because I feel like it shouldn't 
have taken a crisis for people to focus on their emotional health, but now people are focused on it. And I think they're realizing how important that is. And I also think that they're they're noticing things about themselves that maybe are surprising. For example, if you had said a few months ago, you're going to be at home, everything's going to be closed except for maybe grocery stores and pharmacies. And when you go to those, everybody is masked and gloved right. <laughs> and let in in certain intervals. You know, if you take a walk outside, you can't even smile at neighbors because you're behind a mask. You know, all of, you know, people are going to be sick. It's going to be very scary. I think a lot of us would have said, I, I won't be able to live like that. Mm. You know, and this is going to go on indefinitely, right? <laughs> it's not like two weeks of your life. A lot of people would have said, I don't think I can cope with that. And yet look at us. Like, even if you're experiencing difficulty during this time, as almost everybody is, look at how resilient we've been. Right. Look at how creative and flexible and adaptable in terms of the ways that we are trying to create connection and really community and realizing that we're all interconnected and how important it is that we belong to community and contribute to community. So I think that we're going to take with us the sense of inner strength that we didn't know that we had, and also this larger sense of responsibility, not just to ourselves, but to those around us as well. So how do you think that's going to change in the coming months, you know, like to foster a sense of community? I mean, right now, obviously, there's a lot of, um, you know, video calling and so forth going on, but it's probably not going to be like this forever, right? The economy is going to open up, but maybe we won't have, you know, concerts, maybe we won't be going to the theater, maybe we can't go to a bar because it's going to be too crowded and it's not going to be something that's going to open up early on. Right. Well, I think, again, that people are prioritizing sort of, you know, what is nourishing to them and who is nourishing to them and who's not. So I think that, you know, with community, there are lots of ways to reach out, even if you can't be in a large public space with a lot of people. You can bring dinner to your neighbor across the street and leave it on her doorstep and wave through the window, huh. right? That's or, a great idea. You know, people, people do that. We've done that. You know, my son is involved in this project where they match teenagers with, with older people who are living alone and that's, he's their buddy and he calls once a week and they have conversations and they're developing these relationships. So there are ways that you can reach out and be a part of your community and give back that feels not only good for the person to whom you're giving, but it feels really good to you. It gives us such gratification to say, wow, I, I gave to this person because you're getting some energetically, you're getting something back from that interaction too. Right. And um, I'm just curious, I have one question. I don't know if you know the answer to it, but some of us, you know, have been going through this rush and we've been almost more connected nowadays through video, through Zoom. And now a certain feeling of Zoom fatigue has settled in. How do you explain that? Well, <laughs> looking at a screen, looking at someone mediated through a screen is very different from physical presence with somebody. You know, in therapy, when a lot of people would say, can I just do Zoom sessions before this? You know, when people used to come into the office, I only wanted to work with people in person. It was like a colleague of mm. mine said that doing Skype, doing Skype therapy was like doing therapy with a condom on, meaning... Right. <laughs> It's like, it doesn't have the same intimacy. Um, there's something very different about sitting a few feet away from someone, hearing them breathe, being in the same physical space with them. So I don't think that that's going to go away. Meaning I think that after we get through this, you know, we are going to want to be in the same physical space with people, no matter how convenient Zoom can be. But I think what's happening now is people are overscheduling themselves. They feel like I'm really worried about having empty moments. So I'm going to schedule like, you know, this Zoom meeting and that Zoom meeting, and then I'm going to do Zoom yoga. And then I'm going to do like right. Zoom like book club. And then I'm going to do my Zoom uh, happy hour with my <laughs> friends because I haven't talked to them. And basically you sat sitting at a screen all day. And maybe it would be better if you kind of, again, in moderation, did some of those things, but didn't try to overschedule yourself because you're trying to alleviate your anxiety. And, and I think it's also a different feeling, right? I mean, you're not only looking at a screen, but people are relatively close to 
to their screens. So it's almost like you're sitting right next to people. And let's say you are on a Zoom conference and you're looking at 20 faces and you all look at them, you know, in their face at the same time. It's something that is kind of unreal. It's not, you know, how we typically act, right? When when we are in a real life setting, we don't look at 20 faces all at once, right? We, we focus on one person at a time. Yeah, yeah. It, it definitely can't replace presence. Mm-hmm. And I think what we're all lacking right now is in-person presence. And so that's, that's something that I think, you know, maybe we took for granted before. And when we do emerge to whatever the next steps are in going back to, to some kind of being around humans again, I think we won't take presence for granted anymore. Right. And there are actually also some people that prefer not to be on video at all because they're like in a relatively intimate setting, their homes, right? And they don't like to share that aspect, right? They prefer to be in audio only. (laughs) Um, I actually just wrote a piece for the New York Times about what it's like doing virtual sessions because people need to find a private place Mm -hmm. to talk to their therapist. And often it's in a closet or in a car (laughs) or sitting on the toilet seat (laughs) in the bathroom. And so you're really seeing inside people's homes. And by the way, they're seeing inside mine. I don't do mine from the bathroom, but um, it, it is very different. And in some ways, there's almost like a leveling, you know, like we're all going through this together and it's funny and it's intimate. And I think that in some ways it's kind of comforting yeah. to to have that experience. I guess it, it goes back again to being vulnerable, opening yourself up. And, you know, I personally don't mind, you know, seeing somebody's you know, kids or, you know, cats or pets, you know, running around, you know, it's, it's part of it, right? It shows that you have a life, right? You're not just some gray suit, you know, that works in, in a company. Right. Well, I think what's, what's interesting is that for so many of us, we may know that somebody has kids or they have a partner or they live with their parents or whatever it is. Right. And yet we've never seen those people yeah. and we've never really asked about them. So, you know, a lot of people all of a sudden they're like, Oh, tell me, Oh, your kids. Right. And they can, they can ran into the room or, you know, or their dog barged into the room or the cat's crawling on the screen. And all of a sudden we take an interest in people's lives and they become much more dimensional to us. Yeah. That's actually what happened to my wife. You know, like she connected with coworkers that she never connected, you know, before in the past. And they learned things that they didn't know about her, like how we have a cat and, you know, that they have a cat and, you know, and all these new connections actually popped up that I guess otherwise would have never really happened. Right. So there's the, you know, sort of the upside of this is that I think that the human dimension is becoming much more visible to other people. And maybe what we can take away from this is that in our in our lives, it's important to really ask about people, to be curious about people, because you never know what kinds of connections you might make if you just ask a few questions. Right. And going back to our personal stories, how do you think those will be affected now um, by this pandemic in the longer run? I think that the even the language that we use will affect how we make sense of these stories. So for example, we keep using the word isolation, that we're isolated, but we're not actually isolated. We are physically distanced from other people. But all you have to do is pick up your phone right. and turn on your laptop and, and um, you can be connected to anyone in any city, basically, that's in your contact list. So we aren't isolated. So I think that there are certain ways of thinking about this that are more helpful or less helpful. And the ways that we tell these stories to ourselves will help us to cope differently. So if, you, if you're going around and you wake up in the morning and, you're, and you think to yourself, oh, I'm isolated. Well, you're not in a dark jail cell with no contact with other humans. Right. Um, That's just not the reality of the situation. And so, you know, to really be able to choose the language that we use when we tell ourselves these stories, like, yes, I'm physically distanced from people, but today I can still call my mom or I can call my sister or I can call my best friend or, you know, or I have my children here or my partner here or whatever it is. Right. 
but you still have to make that step, right? You still have to be proactive about it. Like just to throw in an example, I'm a member of a running club and, you know, this gives me, of course, opportunity to be both active, but also to interact with certain people. But it probably would come less likely to my mind to, you know, give any of the members a call and like to interact one-on-one with some of them because I'm more like used to interacting with some of them in a group setting. Yeah, absolutely. So I think there's that flexibility in the story of can the story look a little bit different during this time? Right. All right. Um, Laurie, do you think there's still anything that you would like to share with our audience? No, I think think it was a great conversation and I so appreciate your having me on. Awesome. And how can our listeners learn more about you? And you've also been writing a book. How can they learn more about that? Right. So my book, Maybe You Should Talk to Someone, is out at bookstores everywhere and get it shipped to you in this current time from Amazon or any of your local independent bookstores. Many of them are also shipping. It's uh, been on the New York Times bestseller list for about a year now, and it's being made into a television series with Eva Longoria. And um, they can follow me on Twitter at Lori Gottlieb One. They can read my Dear Therapist column every Monday in The Atlantic. I have a new podcast that's coming out uh, with iHeartRadio that Katie Couric's producing. And if they want to be on the show, they can uh, write in a letter. What is it going to be about? Uh, it's called Dear Therapists. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of like my column, except uh, we we do it, uh, have real conversations with people and we bring them back to see how the advice went. And they can write to Lori and Guy at iHeartMedia.com. They can follow me on my website, which is LoriGottlieb.com. They can follow me on Instagram at LoriGottlieb underscore author. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it, Lori. Oh, thank you so much for the conversation. Stay safe. Yeah, stay safe and sane. Take care. Take care. As you heard from Laurie, we're in a pretty unique situation now that, just like we discussed last week with Adrian and I, allows for a reset of sorts. What do you think? Are you taking the new situation as an opportunity to redefine your own story by acknowledging your emotions and perhaps by opening yourself up to others in your own community? Or have you taken up the chance to reconnect with some long lost friends? Let us know. You can tweet us or find us on Instagram at shape20fit. I'm Martin Kessler from San Francisco. And this is 20 Minute Fitness.